Thank you. Good morning. Uh, hopefully everyone has some notes in front of you that say uh, of the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof, the, right at the top, 6.2. Uh, so we'll be looking at that this morning. I want to encourage you to turn, uh, if you would, to um, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 and just to kind of prepare our hearts more specifically for the, the topic at hand. I, I think we'll have time this morning. I, I was um, really encouraged with what I read this morning in uh, Voices from the Past. So if you, if you read it, you already heard this. But I just thought it was good materials from David Clarkson. And um, it, it speaks really of uh, where a, a person is at a particular point in time. And so I just want to read to you what he had to say. Then we'll read Genesis chapter 2, have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the, at the lesson. So just to read to you, this is from David uh, Clarkson, a Puritan. It's based on um, John six twenty three. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And then Clarkson writes, the love of Christ daily loads us with benefits. He gives us nothing but what is good. He blesses our curses, temptations, afflictions, sin, and death, and they all prove good to us. Even all his ways prove good to us. And not only all the ways of God who love us in Christ, but all the ways of those who hate us, whether reprobates or devils, Romans 8.28. This is the great privilege of those whom Christ loves. Nothing shall befall them, but what shall prove good for them. They may conclude in whatever condition they are in, it is best for them. And if it had not had been so, they would never have been brought into it. And whenever it shall cease to be, they shall be removed out of it. This is the sweetest privilege, yet the most difficult to believe at all times, since there's often great opposition to it by our sense and reason. Yet it is most true. Christ's love gives us whatever is good, no good thing. Does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Take a survey of heaven and earth and all things therein, and whatever upon sure grounds appears good, ask for it confidently from Christ, for his love will not deny it. If it were good for you that there was no sin, no devil, no affliction, no destruction, the love of Christ would instantly abolish these. Nay, if the possession of all the kingdoms of the world were absolutely good for any saint, the love of Christ would instantly crown him the monarch over them. Christ's love will give you whatever you can desire, for what reasonable man can desire that which is not good? All that is good, the promises of God have already assured you. So there you go. I thought that was good information from David Clarkson. So now Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 through 17. Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 through 17. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. 
Then the Lord God formed of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there is divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is, excuse me, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. Verse 17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. And let us pray. Father, thank you this morning that we can come together and, and worship a God that is glorious and a God that is pure and a God that is holy. And I, we, we pray these moments for the, the help of your precious Holy Spirit just to uh, convey your precious word in a way that is not only honoring to thee, but it is truly helpful and good to the souls of each one that is here this morning. We, we thank you so much for the, the, the precious fellowship we share in the person of Christ and the eternal hope that is found in him. And I, I would pray that our time together would be instructed to our minds, that you would give us understanding as to not only the, the fall of man, but in conjunction with that, something of the, the very nature and the glory of the gospel. So pray that our, our time together would be profitable and helpful. It might it be a uh, a precious tonic to our souls in living for thee. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far, as we've looked at this theme of the, the fall of man, we've considered the, the need of it. Uh, one is to understand history, that is why it is the way that it is. Uh, another is to um, understand um, our, ourselves, even as Christian believers, why it is that we might struggle with, uh, with certain things or continue to do so. And then thirdly, to help us to understand the gospel, especially the, the nature of the gospel uh, and what it must do to um, deliver us from the condition um, as a result of the fall. Um, so we looked at the paragraph that especially deals with the circumstances of the fall, and that's, that was broken down into two different parts, the initial perfection and then initial transgression. Um, and then we looked at some observations that were connected with that. I really drew heavily from uh, Louis Burkhoff. Uh, God cannot be regarded as the author of sin. We looked at a particular text uh, in connection with that. Uh, the origin of sin in the human race. Uh, the nature of the first sin. We considered the formal character and then the essential character. And then the occasion of the first sin, the circumstances surrounding it, uh, the historicity of the first sin, uh, and especially how other, other writers in, in Scripture clearly understood it as a historical um, event. Um, in this study, we want to just take a moment and kind of outline the rest of the chapter uh, under three main headings. And then we'll especially look at, at paragraph two that is in your notes. But paragraph two would be the consequences of the fall for Adam and Eve. 
the consequences of fall as it relates especially to Adam and Eve. And then we get to paragraphs 3 and 4. It's the consequences of their fall for their posterity. And then paragraph 5 is going to be the consequences of fall for of the fall for all believers. But this morning we want to focus on the consequences of the fall for Adam and Eve. Uh, what it meant to them, we'll, we'll move a little bit from that, but basically that's the idea, that the consequences of the fall, what it meant specifically for Adam and Eve. We'll look at uh, three points in connection with this. First, The first is that uh, they lost the benefits of the gracious presence that God affords. They, they lost the, uh, the benefits that the gracious presence of God affords, which is really a, a big deal. They lost the, the sweetness and the preciousness of communion with the God of, of the Bible. Um, as Robert Shaw puts it, uh, by this sin they fell from their righteousness in communion with God. And let me just stop there for a moment and, and read the first paragraph, and then we'll just come back to this. The first paragraph, chapter 6, verse 2, right at the top of your notes. By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Okay, and so then Robert Shaw um, says, our first parents, this is in your notes, our first parents lost the happiness which they had formerly possessed. They were expelled from that pleasant and delightful abode in which God placed them. The ground was cursed with barrenness for their sake, for, excuse me, with barrenness for their sake. They were doomed to lead a life of toil and sorrow, and at last to return to the earth from which they were taken. They, they lost communion with God, the chief good. They forfeited his favor and incurred his righteous displeasure. Um, so this kind of puts into perspective um, what happened with respect to the fall. They lost communion with God. And some of the verses here show how precious of a thing that is. Psalm 1611, Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Uh, Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have, I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And there's some other verses along the, the same line that bring out the preciousness of communion with God. And this is, this is what they lost as a result of the effects of the fall. Psalm 21 and verse 1, uh, thy strength, the king will be glad. In thy, O Lord, in thy strength, the king will be glad. And in thy salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire, and thou hast not withheld the request of his lips. For thou dost meet him with the blessings of good things. Thou dost set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asks life of thee, thou dost give it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through thy salvation. Splendor and majesty thou dost place upon him. For thou dost make him most blessed forever. Thou dost make him joyful with gladness in thy presence. And Psalm 43, 4, uh, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise thee, O God, my God. And then Acts twenty, excuse me, Acts two twenty eight, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou wilt make me full of gladness in thy presence. 
So this is, um, this is what they lost as a result of the fall. This is what no unsaved person really knows, something of the, of the preciousness of communion with the being of the God of the Bible. Number two, they incurred the penalty which disobedience to God brought forth. They incurred the penalty which disobedience to God brought forth, and so became dead in sin. And then to requote Genesis 2.17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Robert Shaw's comment, when I, Robert Shaw has, has written a very helpful commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I found very helpful. So that's, that's who Robert Shaw is. Um, this threatening in, included um, temporal death consisting in the dissolution of the union between the soul and the body. So we die physically, and the, the body stays, the soul goes. Spiritual death consisting in the loss of the favor and the image of God. And then, then eternal death consisting in the everlasting separation of both soul and body from God. So the key word here is, is the term separation. And then Henry Morrison, an older work called the Genesis Record, wrote, the primary warning is undoubtedly spiritual death or separation from God. But this also entails physical death since God is the source of physical life as well as spiritual life. Literally, the warning could be read, dying thou shalt die. Uh, the moment Adam disobeyed God, the principle of decay and death would begin to operate in his body. And finally, this would overcome the built-in metabolic processes and he would go back to the dust from which his body was formed. Shaw writes, the very day in which our first parents sinned, the sentence of death, though not immediately executed in its fullest extent, began to lay hold of them. I thought that was kind of a, a helpful statement. It wasn't executed in its fullest extent, but it began, to, it began to have an effect on them. As Matthew Henry puts it, a dying life. He uses that phrase, a dying life. Um, well, I, I want to just read to you a commentary, a, a comment on Genesis 2.17. This is on the next page. This is uh, from John Calvin, and this is a comment on Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. But it is asked what kind of death God means in this place. It, it appears to me that the definition of this death is to be sought from its opposite. We must, I say, remember from what kind of life man fell. He was in every respect happy. His life, therefore, had a like respect to his body and his soul. Since in his soul a right judgment and a proper government of the affections prevailed, there also life reigned. In his body there was no defect, wherefore he was wholly free from death. His, his earthly life truly would have been temporal, yet he would have passed into death without, excuse me, he would have passed, in, passed into heaven without death and without injury. Death, therefore, it's now a terror to us, first because there's a kind of annihilation as it respects the body, and then because the soul feels the curse of God. We must also see what is the cause of death, namely alienation or separation from God. Thence it follows that under the name of death is comprehended all those miseries in which Adam involved himself by his defection. For as soon as he revolted from God, the fountain of life, he was cast down from his former state. In order that he might perceive the life of man without God to be wretched and lost, and therefore differing nothing, nothing from death. Hence the condition of man after his sin is not improperly called both the privation of life and death. 
the miseries and evils both of the soul and body with which man is beset so long as he is in earth are they're a kind of entrance into death till death itself entirely absorbs him for the scripture everywhere calls those dead who being oppressed by the tyranny of sin and satan breathe nothing but their own destruction in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 kind of elaborate on this, on, on man's condition in this world. And this is, you know, Adam and Eve's posterity. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil, that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And then a helpful comment here by Philip Edgecombe Hughes. Philip Edgecombe Hughes in your notes. This is on, on, on the text that I just read in Hebrews chapter 2. He writes, The lives enslaved by Satan, instead of being filled with a, the joy of living here and hereafter, are dominated and doomed by the fear of death. And this um, enslavement is lifelong. It blights the whole of existence. This throws into grim, grim relief the appalling contradiction at the center of the being of unregenerate man and the futility of his existence. His very living is so is overcast by the fear of death. The death that man fears, moreover, is not just the physical death that he faces. It is the second death, the fact that after death there is judgment. We, we talked about that recently. There is a sense, I believe, even in unsaved man, that death is... Um, as a result of sin. So there is this fear of judgment that happens after death, even in unsaved men. This next little part is not in your notes, but um, at this juncture, it, it does help. I just want to say this does help us to understand something of the glory of the gospel because we read about these kinds of things and, and we see what a terrible thing that death is. Um, and, and in the gospel, the whole situation caused by the fall of Adam and Eve and that eventuated in death, the whole situation begins to be reversed. Um, regeneration, by definition, is, is the impartation of life to the soul. So when a person comes to Christ, there is resurrection life that is in the soul. And the, the de death is the idea of separation. But when a person is converted, there, there's reconciliation and there's adoption. So that there's a reversal of the separation um, from the reality and the glory of fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with the being of God. And just a text that I will read to you in this connection. 1 John chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4 brings this out. 1 John chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy, or your translation might say, so that your joy may be made complete. So what, what the gospel does, it reverses the effects of the fall. In terms of death, it imparts life. Instead of separation, there is reconciliation to the being of God. And, and instead of separation, there is communion with God, which was lost by the effects of, of the fall. Um, and this, this restoration extends further. I'll just read to you from... Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Uh, Galatians, if you, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power he has, even to subject all things to himself. So this restoration in terms of full recovery extends into when there is the return of the person of Christ and we receive a, a glorified body.
Okay, then at number three, they experienced a defilement which extended to the totality of their being. They experienced a defilement that extended to the, the totality of their being. Uh, the way the, the confession puts it, wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of the body and soul. Faculties of the body and soul. Some of the texts which elaborate on this are Titus 1.15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Genesis 6.5 then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately wick, wicked or sick. Who can understand it? Romans three ten and following, as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, there's none who seeks after God. All turned aside, together they become useless. There's none who does good, there's not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are, are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so Robert Shaw's comment is, they've become wholly corrupted in all the faculties of their souls and members of their body. The understanding, once a lamp of light was now overwhelmed in darkness. The will, once faithful for God and regulated by his will, now became perverse and rebellious. The affections, uh, once pure and regular, now become, uh, this is a term, uh, vitiated. It's the idea of they spoil or they rot and disordered. Uh, the body, too, was corrupted, and its members became instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Um, and then I, I would just kind of interject at this point, too, um, that the gospel reverses this as well. Uh, one of the things that the, that the fall affects is people's understanding, their, their, their intellect in the sense of being able to, to perceive spiritual realities. And just, just two or three texts, you might turn to these. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. This is the, the effect that the fall has on the mind and the ability of the mind to process spiritual reality. 1 Corinthians 2.14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And underscore here, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And if you look across the page to verse 18 of chapter 1, uh, the word of the cross is, to the, is, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And one other text I would just read to you in this connection uh, about the, the mind of the unsaved and the effects of the fall would be Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18. It says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And the two things go together. There is no life of God, and therefore their understanding is darkened when it, when it comes to spiritual things and perceiving spiritual things. And, and so when the Spirit of God works in a, in, in a soul, this is reversed also. And, and you might turn, I got two sections of Scripture that I might draw your attention to that, that shows how the, the Spirit works and changes the mind to perceive spiritual realities. The first one is in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and then verse 11 and following. Luke chapter 15 and, and verse 11 and following. Um, this is a familiar passage to you, but I just want to draw attention to part of it. Um, 
It says, a certain man had two sons, Luke 15, 11. Uh, the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days uh, later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. He was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. Now, notice verse 17. But when he came to his senses, this is like his reason, spiritual reason returned to him or came to him. He, he says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I, I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead, has come to life again, was lost and has been found. And they begin to be merry. So this is what happens in conversion. And after the spirit works in the heart, then he's saying, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Then he understands who he is before God. And the other section, if you would turn back to Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4 um, and verse 28 has to do with Nebuchadnezzar. And you see the same kind of thing here is um, how something has to happen to the mind in order to bring restoration and, and to bring one to salvation. This is from Daniel chapter 4 and then verse 28. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 28 concerns uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 28 says, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, um, the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and says, Is, not the, is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the, right of my, by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the fields. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until, notice this, you recognize that the Most High is a ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like cattle, and, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And notice this, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of men. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou or what hast thou done? At that time, verse 36, My reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I, I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
Praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Well, he's thinking this way because of the work of the Spirit of God in his soul, and that's what happened. As a result of the fall, our foolish heart is darkened, and there's an inability to process spiritual things. But when the life of God enters the soul, then the understanding is enlightened and able to perceive spiritual things particularly with respect to to the gospel and and he embraced the glory of the the sovereignty of god when the spirit was was working in his heart so um all right there you go let us um let us let's pray father thank you for the time together we thank you for the teaching of holy scripture i I pray that you would take what we have considered this morning i I pray will be profitable to our thinking process as we consider what happened and what happened to mankind and what happened in conjunction with the fall and what are the effects of that. And we pray that you would help us to understand um, the, the extent and the depth to which he fell. But we pray that you would cause us to glory also in, in the, the nature of the specific kind of gospel that is needed to, to recover one from that fall. So we thank you that you have made provision for us through your Son. And Father, this day as we would uh, gather together for worship, we pray that it would be pleasing to thee and honoring to thee. We pray that your Spirit would continue to work in our midst. We pray that our fellowship with one another would be uh, sweet and, and precious and Uh, We thank you for this consideration, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.